It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We have a uh, week-long training that is beginning Technically, it began yesterday, but this is the first daily thunder session. Some of these uh, students that are sitting in front of me right now have never even heard a daily thunder episode. So could you imagine what it would be like to arrive at episode number 25 in a series, and it's like the first one you guys have heard. But I don't know what this is. Nathan, do you know how many uh, episodes we've had in daily thunder so far? It's like, is it, it's like 860s you know, somewhere in there, right? So you've missed out on a lot uh, if you haven't uh, ever heard Daily Thunder. But Nathan and I are both going through a series uh, in the summer and the fall training season. And so, like, I'm doing Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and Nathan's doing Tuesdays and Thursdays. His series is called Soul Drift, so you guys will be able to hear that tomorrow. Mine is called Spiritual Lessons from World War One, And right when you think you're not interested in war which is sort of like me. I wouldn't naturally think I would be interested in war, but I'm extremely interested in war. I'm not a war sort of guy. I'm not a guy that wants to pick up a gun and shoot someone. And yet, I have a tremendous fascination in war. Why? Because I'm in the midst of one. My life is in a front lines position, and I have uh, bullets whizzing by me constantly. I have shrapnel in my shoulder. I'm like, God, what's going on? And I am extremely fascinated in war because it helps give language and understanding to what I'm dealing with in the spiritual side of things. And so I went through back in 2020 in the midst, I don't know if you guys remember 2020. It was, uh, I know it might've been blocked out by now, but, uh, but I went through, even right before uh, the COVID weirdness started, I had started a series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II. And during that weirdness, I was going through this series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II, and it was profound how it paralleled the meltdown of culture and how the powers of evil will, will swing in to try and take up space. It was very interesting, and, but it was 93 episodes. This one I'm trying to be a little more taut and contained in, uh, which I don't know if I, if I like it so far, uh, because I've, it, my containment, I mean. I, I really like the series, but uh, the containment's sort of difficult because I have 42 episodes. Um, this is 25, okay, so I'm actually past halfway. And I'm still in 1914. The war starts in 1914. It ends in 1918. Okay, do you see a problem uh, here? So, however, I'm right in the process. Like, even today is somewhat of a fast-forward message where I'm going to deal with a gap of time as opposed to a day or a moment. And that's a lot of what I've been dealing with. I've been dealing with the people behind it. It's been extremely interesting. So, for those of you that think that war could never be interesting, it is extremely fascinating because it shows the brittleness of humanity. It also shows the nobility of humanity. You see the contrast, and you see a lot of your own soul when you look in the mirror of these things. You see your attitudes, you see your responses that sometimes can be hasty or sometimes can be noble. And so you have all sorts of characters in World War I. Uh, William II is probably one of my favorite guys to actually bring back up on the screen. His, his name is technically Kaiser Wilhelm II, okay? He's the sort of like the emperor, the king, or the Caesar, that's where Kaiser comes from, of Germany. And then you have Nicholas II, who's the czar, which is like Caesar, of Russia. 
sort of an unstable fellow in his own right. But, you know, you really like uh, Nicholas II. William, you don't really like. The more you study him, the more you're just like, oh boy, William. No, no, William. And, but then you have other characters, like probably the, the, the most liked character in World War I from, from I would say, the, the Ellerslie audiences we've been going along with it is a guy named Albert. Uh, and King Albert of Belgium is something very, very special. He's one of the rare heroes at the leadership level in this. In fact, I'd almost say maybe the only one that truly out of all the, the national leaders, you would say, now that is a guy I want to grow up to be like. There's a whole bunch of soldiers that you would want to grow up to be like, but on the national level, the global, uh, the kingly, uh, princely level, this is a special guy. So we're going to dive into this, and it's going to be tough because some of you are going from zero to 120 miles an hour uh, right now. I mean, when you're at 25 episodes into a series. But this one, uh, actually, that is really odd because that isn't my title. My title is called The Ethics of Victory. But what's interesting is I almost changed my title to this, and there it is on the screen, which is When Is It All Right to Sin? But that isn't my title. <laughs> That's just so strange. So it's called The Ethics of Victory, and I, I'm sitting here in my brain trying to figure out how that ended up in my title slot, because it's like I would have had to do it, but there it is. And it's interesting, because that's actually what the message is about, which is why I almost named my message this, which is why it's probably on the screen here. But when is it all right to sin? Is there ever a point in time when it's okay to do that? And that's going to become a very, very significant thing in the landscape of World War I. But this is actually called the ethics of victory. So this is a map that those of us that have gone through this uh, series have become very familiar with. It's Europe in 1914. If you looked at Europe now, you're going to notice a lot of change and shape changes. And part of that's going to be the result of World War I. And part of it's going to be the result of World War II. There's a lot of different dynamics that have played into the European landscape. The middle countries, the reddish-purple ones, uh, those are going to be called the Central Powers or the Triple Alliance. And Germany's at the top, and it looks like a horse's head. And Austria-Hungary is going to be actually where the leading cause of the World War is going to start, down in Sarajevo. And you can see Sarajevo way at the bottom of Austria-Hungary. And Italy is a part of the Central Powers. They're in an agreement that if Germany or Austria-Hungary is attacked, that they will come to their aid. However, Italy is not going to come to the aid of Germany and Austria-Hungary in World War I. And the reason is, is because it's not Germany and Austria-Hungary being attacked, it's them attacking. And as a result, they will use their loophole and sneak out of World War I in that sense from joining the Central Powers. The blue countries are what are called the Triple Entente. And Germany has a fear. They have a phobia, and it's a very real thing to them. And that is that they feel encircled. And, you know, you can understand on one side is their mortal ally, France, and on the other side is uh, Russia, who used to be their friend, but Kaiser Wilhelm has poked Nicholas II in the eye, and Nicholas II and the rest of Russia are not too happy with them, and they've sided against Germany. And so Germany feels like they're being encircled, which is going to be one of the leading causes of World War I. And the United Kingdom is going to join in, and that is a result of a very specific action that Germany is going to take. So I'm going to walk through just, this is like a hyperspeed version to catch us up. That star is in a place called Sarajevo. A Serbian terrorist 
named Gavrilo Princip is going to come to Sarajevo and the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is going to be shot. And that is going to trigger all sorts of events. And Austria-Hungary is going to declare war on Serbia. Now, when that happens, Serbia has an, a treaty with Russia. So Russia sort of takes care of Serbia as its little brother. And so when Austria-Hungary declares war and attacks uh, Serbia, then Russia mobilizes. They didn't declare war, they just mobilize. When Russia mobilizes, Germany's phobia awakens at the highest level, and they feel like this is the hour for their move. They have been planning this move for decades. It's called Der Tag, the day. And it's called the Schlieffen Plan, very specifically, where they're going to sweep in and take Paris in 39 days. They feel it's going to take 39 days for Russia to get its you know, lumberous self up off the bed and get into war position. So they need to somehow capture Paris and defeat the, defeat the French before that 39th day so that they can then turn all their energies to hit the, the Russians. To do that, they're going to make a significant mistake that in history is oftentimes considered one of the dumbest moves any nation has ever done. They're going to go through Belgium. Now, it actually makes a lot of sense to go through Belgium. There's nice roads that lead, are going to lead them right to France. And so it makes a lot of sense. However, Belgium is a neutral country. And even Germany itself has sworn to protect the neutrality of Belgium. So all these powers have sworn to protect Belgium neutrality. So when they violate Belgium neutrality, guess who gets awakened on the other side of the English Channel? Great Britain, the United Kingdom, which has Commonwealth nations all over the world. And so when you awaken Great Britain, which is the strongest military uh, force, not in the infantry, but in power and in uh, potential and in economics, they are going to awaken for themselves a significant problem. And yet, to get this done in 39 days, they need to go through Belgium and capture Paris. And so when they do that, that's going to get you know, the United Kingdom involved. Of course, France is, knows that they've been planning this for a long time. However, Germany looks like they're going to do it. They actually look like they're going to be victorious. It's been brilliant, and everyone in Germany is celebrating. They even have already have, have medals and that they're handing out to the officers because they've done it. And yet there's going to be one fatal error, and von Kluck's first army, which is the one that's going to capture Paris, is going to turn just a little to the right and is going to expose his flank, which is going to cause the British and the French forces to have an opportunity, and they're going to strike, and it's called the Battle of the Marne. And that is going to push Germany back, and it's going to ultimately lead to what we know as the Western Front. And so you're going to see what is going to take place is going to be a stalemate of four years. Now, when I say a stalemate, that could sound very harmless. This is a stalemate where both sides are pouring themselves into this line to try and break it. And they're going to lose millions of men. An entire generation of men is going to be gobbled up in this activity. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't activity all over the world. However, this is what we've been focused on. Okay, so this is where we're at in late 1914. The war is going to start uh, in uh, August uh, of 1914, and now we just had something called the Christmas Truce, which was Christmas 1914. So right now we're like sort of the end of 1914, the beginning of 1915. I'm not giving a date because it's more of a period of time. So the question, when is it okay to sin? So obviously I already sort of gave that away accidentally with my title up on the screen. 
but is there a point in time when it is okay? It's like, well, in this situation, it would make total sense to sin. I mean, we could actually come up with all sorts of justifications of like why it's okay to do this in this one situation because, I mean, no one would know. That's, that's like a classic one. It doesn't hurt anyone. Is it ever okay to sin? November 1914, at any cost, victory must be achieved. So there's going to be some decisions that are going to be made by the Germans. Now, I'm German, which is why I can say certain things. Uh, you know, if I wasn't, then some of you could question it, right, and say, is this some kind of racial prejudice, Eric? However, the Germans, and I've noticed a lot about German behavior in going through World War I. In fact, my wife has probably appreciated the fact that I've recognized certain things. But, uh, but the Germans do everything with excellence. And at this time, they were noted for it the world over. They had the best music. They had the best scientists. Their advancements in technology were extraordinary. Their organization of government, their organization systems were magnificent. Their war machine was unprecedented. I mean, even the, like the goose-stepping soldiers was so impressive and so intimidating to every other nation that took note of it and watched them. Like, these guys are a machine. And still to this date, it's probably one of the greatest military units that was ever sent off to war was the war machine of the Germans in World War I. And so I think it was H.G. Wells that said something like, the Germans are the best of people and the most evil. And it's because they have this odd quality, and that is their militarism is the way it would have been called back then. But it's sort of like this. It's like they think that they're right. And it's sort of hard to argue. Everything they do seems to work, right? And so they have this thing called Kultur, culture. And the German culture is the premier culture. And every other nation should bend to that, should acknowledge that, and should become like us. And so a German, at least back in World War I, and you can definitely test your Germanness in this statement, usually thinks that they're right. And anyone who has an opposing viewpoint to their viewpoint ought to change their viewpoint to match with yours, okay? So I've noticed this in regards to, you know, it's the old uh, wasp uh, phenomenon. When the wasp comes uh, zooming around, buzzing around, that, uh, you know, you have the, uh, the different methods of handling it. And my method is to stay still and ignore it, okay? That was what I was taught by my dad, and that bee has no interest in you. Right? And so you're just supposed to stand there and let it, you know, even if it crawls around in your face, like just ignore it, it'll go away. And, you know, my family doesn't always agree with my stay stiller mentality. And I get sort of upset with them for moving around and running around and yelling and screaming and doing those things. Like, guys, just stay still. And I've recognized that it's a very German quality, you know, to, because I think that my method of handling bees or wasps is the best method, right? And not everyone agrees with my method, which really bothers me. It's like, if you would just listen to my method, you would be saved from all bee stings, right? And it, it's a, it's, maybe it's just a German quality. And so Leslie and I have been joking that I could probably use a little more Jamaican in my German, uh, and it would probably help me a lot because I can be very, very intense. With my own soul, it's really good, you know, like straight line when I'm mowing. You know, a, a, a nice edge to the lawn, uh, a nicely coiled uh, rope or, uh, or hose. You know, there's things that, 
you have to admire, and it's a wonderful quality. However, when you try and then press it upon everyone around you, that everyone else should have the same thing, that's the vulnerability of the German. And that's exactly what we're going to see here. The Germans are very motivated to win this war. They're the ones that are technically going to start the war, even though they're going to try and claim that they didn't, right? They're the ones that actually want, and they've been planning this for decades, Der Tag, it's even called The Day. And they're going to go on the offensive, they're going to try and take Paris, they're going to fail. And then as that Western Front is forming, they are trying to get around and flank uh, the French and the British so that they can still have a potential of ending this war. And the question is, if, if you have the possibility of winning a war or losing a war, what are you willing to do to win the war? Because if your value system is all based around winning the war, then what are you willing to do to win that war? And the Germans are going to come to the conclusion that it's win at all costs. So in 1899, remember we're in 1914, there's going to be something called the Hague Conference. And the Hague Conference is going to be actually called by Nicholas II. He's the Tsar of Russia. And so all these major uh, nations are going to come together. And they're going to discuss the ethics of war. And they're going to discuss all this new technology that is being developed and what we're supposed to do with it. And they're going to cover, I mean, so many interesting things. And so if you study the Hague Conference of 1899, there's going to be another one in 1907. I think there was another one that was supposed to be in like 1915, but they canceled it because they were in the middle of a war, ironically. And so this is going to define the ethics of war. So I'm just going to mention four things that they came to in that. Now, there's a lot more. However, I'm purposely picking these four. So the Germans are going to agree. And so I'm going to almost speak like a German here. We agree regarding our behavior toward neutral countries during a time of war. It's a very specific agreement of how you handle neutral countries. We agree to not use asphyxiating gases as a weapon. We agree regarding naval ethics. We will declare our intentions of hostility to a passenger ship prior to attack. It's always been naval etiquette that if you're going to bomb a passenger ship, you know, during a time of war, that you at least forewarn them, we're about to bomb you. <laughs> and then they can get in their lifeboats and, you know, scurry away and then poof, you can sh sink the ship. But at least you show honor and respect to these passengers. They're, they're not combatants, right? And then we agreed to not use modern flying devices, that's, that's what they were called, modern flying devices, to bomb civilians in enemy territory. Because they had these dirigibles, they had these zeppelins, these like balloons that were being invented. This is at the same time that planes are being invented, but they were, you know, they weren't that impressive at the time. And, you know, but hey, you know, if you were to attach a bomb to that, someone could just like drop it. And so, hey, we need to discuss this, guys. This is 1899. They're trying to figure out what to do with flying devices, right? And so the Germans are going to agree to all of this. And it just makes sense. I mean, this is honor. This is a code of conduct. And never before in history had there really been a code of conduct. There was chivalry. There was an understanding of what a white flag meant. In other words, there was various agreements, almost like gentleman agreements. But this is like formal agreement where we're going to actually sign our name and say, if we ever went to war, we would honor these things. Now, 15 years later, that's all being tested. German desperation. We must break these agreements, and we must break them now. 
what's the good of an agreement if the first time it's tested, you just throw it to the wind? I mean, we're literally just a couple months into the war. In fact, the very first step of the war is Germany invading Belgium, which is a neutral country. And then they expected Belgium to just stand aside because the most powerful military in the world is coming through their streets and Belgium is diddly squat. They have no military. Why would you need a strong military if you are a neutral country and all the other nations have sworn to protect you? And so they have a military and they're going to bring out their military and they're actually going to say, no, you're not allowed through here. This is an illegal trespass. And the Germans cannot believe the Belgians have the audacity to stand in their way. So they start bombing Belgium, and they, it's called the Rape of Belgium. It didn't go down in history very well for the Germans. In other words, their, their PR department really stunk it up in that one because that's what's ultimately going to awaken the ire of the world, including the United States, which had a ton, which, which does have a ton of Germans in it. So everyone in America is inclined to side with Germany, at least a big percentage, like, hey, that's our homeland, you know, yay, go except for this was a really tough one to swallow. It's like, what am I supposed to do with that? So do ends justify means? It's a critical question for your soul. You may not be leading a nation. You may not be in the position to make a choice of whether you should use asphyxiating gases or use a dirigible or a zeppelin to drop a bob. This isn't the type of decision making you and I are making, but we're making decisions all the time in our soul of how we handle the resource we do have, the time we do have. If you get the right outcome, does it matter how you get there? So Dub, who's my 13-year-old, he's my second son, uh, his name is Kipling, but I call him Dub or Dubber Do or Dubber Doosty. Uh, and so Dub's question, this is actually quite a few years ago uh, when he was just a little guy, uh, he said, Daddy, would it be illegal to speed if by speeding you rescued someone's life? I thought it was actually a really good question. It's a very, very significant question in how even the American governmental system works because the American governmental system is based on a premise of two things, that law has two sides to it. It has a letter, which is its actual code, and then it has a spirit to it, which then that spirit can be leveraged if the code were to violate human life in a certain circumstance, like say the pregnant woman that needs to get to the hospital and she needs to get to the hospital like right now. And so the, the husband's like, honey, honey, I'm going as fast as I can. He's making his way down the road and he gets pulled over by a cop because the, the code says he's speeding. But when the cop finds out why he's speeding, he doesn't give him a ticket. He actually goes in front of him and turns on his lights. In other words, it changes the perception of the code because he's, you're actually doing something that saves life or promotes life. And so Dub's question is really important here. Would it be illegal to speed if by speeding you rescued someone's life? So here was daddy's answer. Dub, the law is set in place to help people and not to harm people. The law has a letter and it has a spirit. The letter says, no, you can't speed no matter what. But the Spirit says, if it is in the loving interest of another and speeding would save a life, then you must speed. Now, that could lead to more confusion in you. This is the concept of ethics, too. It's like, huh? How could I violate the law and uh, somehow fulfill it at the same time? 
when the law turns on its sirens and escorts you down the interstate. So there's certain situations where the law actually is going to turn on its sirens and say, no, this is a situation where you can actually violate. It wouldn't be called violating. The pregnant woman needing to get to the hospital, the illustration I just gave. The Ten Booms, this is Corey Ten Boom, Betsy Ten Boom, Casper Ten Boom, when they're going to actually hide Jews in their house. And then the Gestapo is going to come to the door and ask if they have Jews in their house. And they say no. That's a, that's a unique tension for all of us as believers. It's like, uh, are you allowed to say no if the answer was really yes? But if your no is actually preserving life? Oh, that, those are tough ones, right? Brother Andrew smuggling Bibles. It's very clear that it's illegal to smuggle Bibles. The law, the code in Russia, in the Soviet Union at this time, is going to say, no, we do not want that in our country. And Brother Andrew is going to smuggle Bibles. I mean, can you believe he did that? Amy Carmichael is going to rescue girls that are being dedicated to the Hindu temple for child prostitution. In other words, the code of the Indian culture was being violated by Amy Carmichael so that she could preserve life. David eating the showbread. It's a classic illustration that even Jesus is going to leverage in the New Testament. It, that showbread is not for David. That's for the Levites. And yet David, in a situation where he is fleeing for his life, is actually going to eat the showbread. And it was not considered a flaw. And so it's like, what? How, how does that work? Da Jesus healing on the Sabbath. There's this perception of the codified law, and yet Jesus is going to say, what is the Sabbath even for? What is the law even for? It's to protect and preserve life. And so if the Sabbath is there to bring life, then doesn't it make sense that if life could be given on the Sabbath, it would be, even if it appears to violate the law? An ox in the ditch, a sheep in a pit. It's, uh, it's one of the classic statements that our family would say, like when you're working on the Lord's Day, it's like, are you supposed to be working today? It's like, well, I have an ox in the ditch. Uh, and, that was like, and then it seemed like there was a lot of oxes in the ditches uh, in your life. Is, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do that which is more excellent always. So at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, as it's prepping us to hear 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is going to say, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And that is the word hyperbole, which is the, where, where we get the word hyperbole. It is, it's not just a little better. This is far superior way. And that is going to be introduced to us as love. And when you are functioning in love, that actually trumps everything else. That is the superior command. That is the command that is over all the other commands. Galatians 5, 18, and then verses 22 through 23. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. And so it's like the trump card in cards, uh, where no matter what someone plays, like, oh, wow, ace of clubs. Yeah, but trump is uh, hearts this time, and you have even a two of hearts, Pfft, and you can defeat that ace of clubs. And that's love. Love is going to trounce, as far as value system-wise, the law. The law has a value, and it creates a sense of righteousness. However, it's meant to lead you ultimately to that which fulfills righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, which is love. And so what we see is the work of the Spirit is going to function at an elevated level. 
They're in the Bible, we could call it the strange blamelessness. And that is, as Jesus is going to reference in Matthew 12, 5, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? In other words, they are doing the work of God, and yet they need to do it on the Sabbath, but isn't it a violation of the Sabbath? And so even though they are going to seemingly profane the Sabbath, they are actually blameless because what they are doing is of a higher order. And this is a tough balance that we all deal with in our life, is this making of decision of how do I live my life? Because we can easily come under the code of law, but we want to function under the law of love. Love is the higher command. Love is the commission to our soul. They violate a letter, but not the spirit. And in heeding the spirit, they fulfill the law. So when we heed the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of love, then we ultimately are fulfilling God's purpose for the law. What fulfills the law? What satisfies righteousness? What truly brings glory to God? This is important. Leviticus 19.18. This is what is ultimately going to be referenced by Jesus. He's going to say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Of course, before that, he's also going to be talking about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, but this, loving your neighbor as yourself is a very, very critical dimension of what is the design of the Spirit's work in us. As believers, this is what God is doing. And so as a result, we don't actually have to reference back to just commands in the Old Testament. We actually have a higher command now as believers, and that is to love. And when we love, of course we won't be stealing. Of course we won't be cheating on our spouse. Of course we will be honoring our, our parentage. In other words, we are fulfilling these things by functioning after this higher level of living, which is only given by the Holy Spirit. James 2.8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. German ethics. Now again, I'm not trying to throw the Germans under the bus. There's a lot of us Germans in here. However, it's very interesting to see how you can justify your behavior because this is going to be almost the flip of everything I've talked about so far. Because is there ever a point in time when it's okay to sin? And I would say, uh, in a very simple sense, no. <laughs> and now, there are times when it may look as if someone, like Jesus may have looked like he was sinning when he was healing on the Sabbath, when in actuality he was fulfilling all righteousness. That's the whole point of the Sabbath. And so as a result, what may look like an answer, like, well, I mean, look at what Jesus did. Look at David eating the showbread. Look at the priests in the temple. They're profaning the Sabbath. They're sinning. When in actuality, they're fulfilling the purpose of their design. This is what they were designed for. So the German ethics, if our war aims depend upon it, then it is the correct behavior. So we need to be victorious in this battle. We need to be victorious in this war. So no matter what it is that we have to compromise, we're willing to do it. Now, I, I wanted, I'm gonna set some contrasts here so you can sort of see the distinction between what I'm saying is like Jesus healing on the Sabbath and what the Germans are going to make a decision to do. So for instance, they need to make a decision in the Battle of Ypres, the first Battle of Ypres, to gas or not to gas. Now remember in the Hague uh, Conference, they're going to make an agreement that they will not use asphyxiating gases in war. 
However, guys, you need to understand the Germans are desperate and they have to win this. And if they don't win the Battle of Ypres, that means they're not going to outflank the, the French and the British. And they could end up losing World War I. I mean, if they don't win this one battle, they could lose World War I. Do you understand the significance of this? Now, some of you are like, they lost World War I. Hey, no spoiler alerts. Hey, but I want you to recognize they don't know that at this point in time. They've had victory in their hand up to this point. Now they've lost it, and now they can gain it back, but they're going to have to compromise. But the ends would be victory for Germany, and Germany has a superior culture. We are a better people. Can't you see how World War II is going to grow out of this? That is the entire mindset that is going to continue to curdle inside of the Germans. And of course, Nazism is the preeminent picture of a superior race. And yet you see the, the, the foundling versions of it in this. To gas or not to gas, that is the question. Is there ever a situation where it is appropriate <laughs> to use asphyxiating gases on your enemy? Okay, there's a good ethical question for you. First of all, they've already agreed to not do it, right? But victory could be had if we use it. So here's a, uh, this is a British private who is in this battle who is going to experience the Germans asphyxiating gases. Suddenly over the top of our front line, we saw what looked like clouds of thin gray smoke rolling slowly along with a slight wind. It hung to the ground, reaching to the height of eight or nine feet and approached so slowly that a man walking could have kept ahead of it. Now up to this point, no one would have dreamed that gases would be used. I mean, it's like inconceivable that a nation would ever do this to another nation. It is a form of barbarism. It's a form of evil that is incomprehensible. And yet the Germans are desperate. Gas! The word quickly passed around. Even now it held no terror for us, for we had not yet tasted it. From our haversacks, we hastily drew the flannel belts, soaked them in water, and tied them around our mouths and noses. Suddenly, through the communication trench came rushing a few khaki-clad figures, their eyes glaring out of their heads, their hands tearing at their throats. They came on. Some stumbled and fell and lay writhing in the bottom of the trench, choking and gasping whilst, their following trample, whilst those following trampled over them. If ever men were raving mad with terror, these men were. Our biggest enemy was now within a few yards of us in the form of clouds of gas. We caught our first whiff of it. No words of mine can ever describe my feelings as we inhaled the first mouthful. We choked, spit, and coughed. My lungs felt as though they were being burnt out and were, being, were going to burst. Red-hot needles were being thrust into my eyes. The first impulse was to run. It was one of those occasions when you do not know what you are doing. The man who stayed was no braver than the man who ran away. We crouched there, terrified, stupefied. What you're going to see in World War I is you're going to see the Germans step beyond the territory or the boundary that they were supposed to keep. But they're desperate. You can understand it, can't you? And especially if you try and think like a German, we're gonna, we could lose this thing. And if we lose it, we're going to be blamed for it, which means they're going to devastate our country. We're going to lose everything, guys. We need to do whatever it takes to win this war. We're desperate. Bring out the gases. To release the U-boats or to not release the U-boats? That is the question. Now, all these countries had U-boats. In fact, the British and the French had more U-boats than the Germans. However, 
Five minutes into this entire war, Germany was already blockaded by the British Navy, and so all of their uh, boats were already sort of stuck in one spot, and they couldn't even get out. So as a result, the British and the French had no use for their U-boats. What are they supposed to do? Who are they supposed to shoot down? And yet, the Germans had U-boats. This is submarines. And at this time, there was no sonar type of radar that could discern the presence of submarines. So truly, it was the mysterious underwater attack. And yet, naval code said what? Remember the ethics of the naval battle? Is if you're going to hit something, especially a passenger vehicle or a merchant vehicle, you need to first declare your presence. Well, so what do the British and the French do? They hide uh, guns on their, uh, their passenger ships and on their uh, merchant ships so that when the uh, submarine sticks its head above the water and says, hey, we're just about to uh, destroy you, then they take out their gun and, and start shooting the submarine. So what are the Germans saying? This is, this is ridiculous. We could destroy them. We could destroy all their merchant shipping. We could scare everyone in the Atlantic right now and let them know that we're boss. All we need to do is break our agreement. We need to allow our U-boats to do what our U-boats can do. I mean, they have the tool. They could win this war. I mean, they can taste it. If they use their U-boats, they could actually win this war. And they do. They use their U-boats, and they make a massive mistake. And it's called the sinking of the Lusitania. This is one of these, like, Titanic. It truly was. It's like the equivalent of the Titanic. It's this massive passenger vehicle, passenger uh, ship that goes uh, across the Atlantic from the European continent back to America. There's 128 Americans on this. Now, if there's one thing the Germans don't want to do, it's awaken America. America's sucking its thumb. They're stuck in their, you know, their, their problems with Mexico, and they, they have their own issues, right? And they're distracted, and the Germans want to keep them distracted. However, when they shoot down the Lusitania, there's a whole bunch of Americans that can't quite figure out why Germany just did that and how they're getting away with it. And so the pacifist Americans that don't want to have anything to do with what's going on in Europe suddenly are a little interested in what's going on in Europe. And so President Woodrow Wilson, who was the president at the time, is going to basically make a threat. If you continue to use those U-boats and you take down passenger vehicles, if you kill one more American, you take any of our merchant ships out, then uh, we may do something. Woodrow Wilson doesn't like war, so he's, he's struggling to know how to create a threat, you know, and he, he doesn't want to fight anyways. To bomb the home front or not to bomb the home front? See, the home front really didn't exist until World War I. There was always, you know, you have the Western Front where you have two, two parties that are hitting, and, and so the front of battle is, is, the, is the point of contact. And a home front is sort of invented here where you have all these factory workers, you have all these people that are like making munitions and they're sewing uniforms, they're doing things and this whole spy network back here. I mean, Great Britain is really fun to study when you study the, the spy network and, and all that they have going. However, that's going to become a threat and they're going to realize all these manufacturing plants, that's actually just as dangerous as what's going on at the front. So the Germans have these balloons, these uh, zeppelins, and it's like they know what they signed at the Hague Convention, but hey, 
Throw out the Hague Convention. This is an issue of life or death. What's the good of the Hague Convention anyways? Isn't that the funniest thing? Why would you sign all this stuff if by the time, when you get into war, you're like, well, what, I'm going to lose the war because I'm going to honor the Hague Convention? You can sort of understand. You know, if you're a German, you're going to say, wait, well, we either win this or lose this. I want to win this thing. And if we lose it, I mean, very bad things could happen. So to bomb the home front or not bomb the home front. So they're going to attach bombs to their uh, dirigibles, their, their big flying balloons, and they're going to fly over London and drop them. And they're trying to, quote unquote, hit manufacturing plants. But the, the accuracy of these things is about, like, if you could hit London, you'd be doing well. So what's going to happen is they're going to kill civilians. You know, you could just sort of feel, Germany it seems to step on its own toe time and time again in this war. Their, their public opinion stinks, okay? Their, their entire operation, I mean, if you heard all the things they did when they went through Belgium, they're going to uh, exert group punishments uh, for things. When they're going through Belgium, so someone, as they're passing through a town, some little kid, you know, shoots a BB gun at the uh, Germans, and so then the Germans turn and that whole town gets executed because one person. It's group punishment, and hey, yeah, it does work, and everyone is scared to death of the Germans, and the Germans are going to gain a reputation of brutality in all of these things, and I can sort of understand why. So, oh, wait a minute. So there's, there's a picture. Now, it's a painting, okay? We, it's not like you can really capture a photo of this in 1914, but, or and this is in 1915 here, but they're bombing uh, with their, their balloon, London. So this is a German Zeppelin leader, a guy who is like a commander uh, in one of these uh, Zeppelins, and he's trying, he's, he doesn't really like the fact that he's being called a baby killer, uh, and he's, you know, bombing the home front. First of all, this is a violation of the Hague Treaty, and so he's trying to work on his response to this. So he's writing home to his mother, and, you know, he's working on his, uh, his argument. We who strike the enemy where his heart beats have been slandered as baby killers and murderers of women. What we do is repugnant even to us, but necessary, very necessary. Nowadays, there's no such an animal as a non-combatant. Modern warfare is total warfare. A soldier cannot function at the front without the factory worker, the farmer, and all the other providers behind him. You and I, mother, have discussed this subject, and I know you understand what I say. My men are brave and honorable. Their, their cause is holy. How can they sin while doing their duty? If what we do is frightful, then may the frightfulness Germany's salvation. All right, so I'm not sure how you're landing in your soul on these things. However, we have a subtle propensity to behave this way in our life. Okay, not at the grand scale that we see here. I doubt many of you have been in a big balloon flying over a major city and bombing it, right? This isn't probably the behavior that you're being caught red-handed with. However, there's subtleties. There's things that you know in the Hague Convention are off limits, and you should not participate in them. And yet, in your life, for convenience sake sometimes, or just even pragmatically speaking, it's like, this is ridiculous. Why would I hinder myself in this situation? And yet, there is an honor that is necessary, not just in human relationship, but in God relationship. And there's a reason why God has set up our lives the way he has and given us a framework of living. And the key question that we have is, to accomplish something good and noble, 
what is our allowance in making decision and how do we make decision because I want to fulfill my end. I want to live well for God, but to live well for God, sometimes I need to violate other things, don't I? So here's a great illustration uh, uh, that isn't very fun for me to share, but Eric speeding to the meeting. So I, I'm, I have been known to have uh, a heavy foot on the pedal. Uh, Leslie has bragged to me that she has never uh, gotten a ticket Uh, a speeding ticket. And why would she say that to me? Because I have. And I've had quite a few. Now, I don't want to say quite a few. It makes it sound like I've had 20. But it could be five to seven, you know, over the years. Uh, Okay. Now, God has actually worked on me in this arena because in my mind, in a strange sense, it sort of is father to son, you know, it's probably the descendancy issue where, where my dad would say things like, well, you know, police won't pull you over if you're, you're like uh, less than 10 miles over the speed limit, you know, in, in your speed. You know, even on the driver's test, they have a question. It's a trick question. And they'll say things like, uh, is it okay to drive 10 miles over the speed limit? I'm like, true. And like, eh. Uh, <laughs> Because, you know, there's a certain unspoken thing, maybe it is spoken, but, you know, that we know, you know, where, what the buffer is. And so then you not, don't just have that buffer, but then you have your own buffer that you throw in there. But it has reason behind it. For instance, one of my key things in my life is I, I want to honor people by being on time. So in college, I was called, PT, not in college, in missionary school, I was called PTM, perfectly timed man. And there's a reason why I could be a perfectly timed man, and it's because I speed, right? In other words, there's ways to make up gaps. There's, you know, it's like, okay, I have to be there in 10 minutes. That's a 20-minute drive. <laughs> and so when you do that, you're, it's under the banner. For me, I'm doing it because I love someone. That, that's in my mind. And yet I'm also violating something else in the process of trying to be honorable there. And so it creates this tension inside of me. That I'm, I'm just going to get down to brass tacks. For me, the issue is to obey the laws to the degree I can and to trust God with the outcome, as opposed to violating them under a justification. In other words, unless that authority in my life, which in this case could be like the, the legal code for driving speed limits, you know, in whatever municipality or county or state that I'm in, but to show honor for that, and if I'm late, to call, to text, to let someone know, look, I'm running five minutes late. I just hate to be late. I do not like that. It goes against my grain. It goes against my, my makeup. And yet, though I want to justify it, to say, that's okay. I want to submit to this. Now, this all comes out in this story. And that's why I say, always start with obedience to authority. Okay, so I am in the state of Oregon in a hotel, I think I was speaking there or something, and Leslie's with me, and I was looking on the, the, the map, I had been on the phone with someone, we're gonna have dinner with them, and they're in the state of Washington. And so they had said, yeah, we're at exit like eight. And so I was figuring, okay, we're exit like 12, and the way, you know, in, in our world, it comes from every exit is like a mile apart, right? So I was thinking, okay, that's gonna be this many miles up the road, okay, we could leave at this time. So we start heading out, and I realize that the numbers totally reset at the uh, state border. 
and now I'm like 40 miles away. And I am, you know, I'm immediately in sort of a panic mode because PTM, you know, Eric Ludy, perfectly timed man, is not perfectly timed right now. Uh, this is way off. And I, so I'm really concerned. Now, this is in the days of cell phones uh, at this time. I wish I could make it further back, uh, but it's, it is in the days of cell phones. It is still a long time ago, right? But still, days of cell phones. And so we call... And, uh, and we got in touch with the guy who was going to meet us at the thing, and I felt really bad, so it's like, we need to get in touch with him. And so Leslie's talking with him on the phone, she's like, yeah, so we are, uh, it looks like we're a lot further away than we thought. And, and then I, I like yell into the phone, and I'm like, but we're going as fast as we can, we'll get there as soon as we can. And the guy says, uh, please don't speed. And I go, well, we're gonna get there as fast as we can. All right, and he says again, please don't speed. And you know, he kept saying that, like very seriously. It's like, you know, appreciate your sensitivity, but look, you know, I can't stand having you wait in a park and ride uh, for me too long. So I, I, then at a different point in the conversation, it's like, how, how will we know, how will we recognize your car? He's like, it's a white car and it says the word dare on the side. It didn't make any sense to me. He's like, dare, okay, uh, what was that? And so we're making our way down the interstate, and I'm going fast, okay? I'm making some really good time. I'm making up for this mistake, you know, and we're chopping off a lot of time. And meanwhile, he is making some calls. And he is, like, chief of police of that area, and <laughs> <laughs> he is making calls to all the guys on the lookout that are seeing me zoom by, and he says, let him go, let him go. <laughs> So I pull in, and it's a, it's a policeman. I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, and then he told me the story. Okay, it's, it gave a, a tremendous perspective for me that actually I created heartache for him. You know, I'm trying to be respectful for him, and actually I created consternation for him by trying to be sensitive in one area, as opposed to start with the premise that if God has put you under authority, obey that authority. Start with that premise. If that authority asks you to violate your conscience and what God clearly says, no, you can't obey that. But to the degree that you can obey, always obey. And that includes not just driving, but that includes taxes. It includes various things that we come under, which are very irritating at times, and I get that. However, as far as a rule of thumb, we live in a godly fashion by doing so. And so the Germans are going to violate the very core framework of what I'm talking about, and it's going to go very, very bad for them. The contrast of the cross. The cross is a great picture of battle. It's a great picture of war. We just don't usually look at it that way. We have the powers of earth and hell colliding, and you're going to see God win a battle. In fact, it's an impossible to win battle, and at, you, know, you would have said, God needs to bring out all the stops. I mean, because right now the devil looks like he has the upper hand. And yet God is going to win that battle in perfect agreement with his law. He's not going to violate his nature in winning us. You know that it says in the law, thou shalt not steal. You know that you are the possession at this time before the cross, you are the possession of the enemy. And he's not going to steal you. He is going to redeem you. You see, he is going to actually fulfill all righteousness in even winning 
this battle. He is not going to violate the Hague Treaty to actually gain the victory. It's an amazing picture. So the contrast of the cross, Jesus did not violate righteousness in order to fulfill all righteousness. The blamelessness of Jesus, he did it right. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. In him was and is no sin, 1 John 3, 5. He did no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, Isaiah 53, 9. He was and is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, Hebrews 7, 26. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2, 22. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, 1 Peter 2, 23. He was and ever is the Lamb of God, John 1, 29. Without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1.19. He did nothing amiss, Luke 23.41. Certainly he was a righteous man, Luke 23.47. The prince of this world had nothing or no legal grounds of condemnation in him, John 14.30. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He was just, 1 Peter 3.18. Welcome to going to battle Jesus style. In other words, he maintained his purity he, re- he maintained his excellence. He maintained his integrity, even in winning. And so as a map, as a premise point, in contrast with the Germans who were going to compromise all integrity, every verbal agreement that they gave prior to World War I, they are going to feel that they need to violate in order to win World War I. And I would say history has judged them very sternly for that. And yet, for us to recognize that we can have the same propensity to actually say, but this end is so important, I must gain it at whatever cost. And I would say, gain it Jesus style. If you walk life out Jesus style, my dad used to always say, and I've questioned it at times in my brain, he said, Eric, if you just live with integrity and with excellence in all you do, God will always honor that. And doors will open up for you. You will have the resource you need. And there's times when I'm like, I'm not exactly sure because I have a strong stand for Jesus and it seems that this world wants to sabotage it. So even if I do something with excellence, it seems like I have a harder road here. Did my dad understand this? Do I need to do something sneaky here to to get around this? In other words, to truly trust that when you do things God's way, you get God results, even if it's a harder road. Even if you have bomb blasts, it's like I'm going to maintain the narrow way and I'm not going to go broad in my way. The Sinless Victory. Isn't that a great name? That would have been a good title for this message, The Sinless Victory. The integrity that at first appears to be weakness always proves triumphant. Jesus looks weak on the cross, and yet he's going to prove triumphant. His method looks soft, gentle, forgiving, loving. Come on! Be, you know, get a little German in you, Jesus. Get tough. This isn't how a German fights. You see, Jesus is going to look soft. He's going to look weak, and yet you've never seen such strength. He was wielding the greatest military strength the world has ever beheld on that cross. And he's going to do it with excellence. He's going to do it with purity. He's going to do it with integrity. 
He is going to do it in perfect righteousness. Father, I ask that you would search us and try us, that you would know us in our inner man. Lord, where we have our subtle justifications, I pray that you would touch them and that you would expose them. Lord Jesus, we desire to win this battle, but we want to win it your way, according to your pattern. We want to be marked by love. We want to be marked by truth. We want to be marked by purity. Lord Jesus, work through us to do that. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.